0: Hello, and welcome to the first episode in this new series of podcasts from the London Review of Books, Among the Ancients with Emily Wilson. My name is Thomas Jones, and I'm an editor at the LRB. Emily Wilson is Professor of Classical Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Her translations from Greek and Latin include an acclaimed version of the Odyssey, tragedies by Euripides and Seneca, and she is currently working on a new translation of the Iliad. She's written books on the life of Seneca and the death of Socrates, and her study, Tragic Overliving considers what it means when tragic heroes don't die early but, like Oedipus, live too long. For the LRB, she has written on, among others, Sappho, Aeschylus, Aristophanes and Roman comedy. Hello Emily and thank you very much for joining me. Hello Tom. Over 12 monthly episodes, we'll be discussing some of those writers and others as we trace a necessarily partial and far from definitive literary history of ancient Greece and Rome, from Homer and Sappho to Horace and Seneca. We'll be looking at the texts in their historical context, but also as works that continue to be read, translated, staged and thought about to be meaningful more than 2,000 years after they were written. When I sent a first provisional list of possible subjects to Emily a few months ago, one of the things she said in reply was, and I hope you don't mind my quoting your email here, Emily, it would be easy to come up with a list of 12 or 24 other authors that are skipped here. That arbitrariness is a subject in itself, and we'll be talking about questions of canon formation and lost texts along the way. So to begin, in this first episode, not exactly at the beginning, because it's impossible to say when that was, but with a beginning, the Iliad of Homer. James Davidson wrote in the LRB in 1997 that Homer appears to arrive on the field of literature like a meteorite out of a cloudless sky, but turns out to be a mere pinnacle projecting above the surface, part of the long and ancient chain of the oral tradition. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about the oral tradition and where this apparently fully formed poem emerged from.
1: Yes. So, I mean, one of the frustrating things about oral traditions is that once they're gone, how do we reconstruct? The technology of writing didn't exist in the Greek-speaking world for hundreds of years. So during this time of lack of literacy, these wonderful poetic traditions developed of stories about the heroes who fought at Troy and their tales of homecoming or Nostoi. And at the very end of that oral tradition emerge as if fully formed, as you said, these two monumental poems, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, in this traditional poetic meter which was used for singing out loud, telling these stories of heroes and telling about these traditional characters. But both the Iliad and the Odyssey have this very unconventional and surprising take on the stories and the formulaic tropes that they're building on.
0: Because calling the poem the Iliad implies that its subject is Troy, Ilium being being another name for the city – but it doesn't even tell the story of the entire Trojan War, let alone the entire history of the city, does it? So it focuses on this one episode that seems central and canonical to us now because of the Iliad, but it, but it isn't. So what is the, the episode of the war that it tells the story of.
1: Absolutely, yes. So you might think a poem that advertises itself, the Iliad or the Trojan War story, would tell you all about how the Greeks gathered their forces, went to Troy, stayed there for 10 years, the Trojan horse, all of that. It has none of that. There's no Trojan horse in the Iliad. Instead, it takes place during about a month and a half in the 10th year of the war. Um, In the previous 10 years, we get almost nothing about what's been happening for the last 10 years. The Greeks have been gathered in, in the Um, region of Troy, presumably sacking the neighbouring towns and enslaving the women, because they seem to have a lot of enslaved women with them. Um, in In the story of the Iliad itself, we hear of the anger or wrath of Achilles against Agamemnon. So it's a, it's a surprising take also in that it's not about a conflict between the Greeks and the Trojans primarily, it's about a conflict between two members of the elite Greek army. And how, how does the anger of Achilles get formed? What's at stake in that anger? And the terrible cost that is inflicted on the Greek army by the absence of Achilles. So it's a, it's a heroic action story which is about absence and inaction. And it's, all, it's also about both external action, men killing each other, but also internal action. What are Achilles' feelings and how do they form and how do they go away? How does Achilles, in some way or other, rejoin his community?
0: It's because at the beginning, and for much of the poem, of course, he's, he's sulking in his tent.
1: Yes, or oh, at least he's, he's not doing it. He's not fighting, at least. I mean, he's playing the lyre and he's hanging out with his his dear friend Patroclus. Um but he's certainly not fighting.
0: So, so, so one question from that is, who are Achilles and Agamemnon? They're Greek kings, Greek leaders, but in what sense are they Greek? Mm-hmm. And, and even in what sense are they kings? Because I mean, how many people did they lead as it were.
1: Yes so Greek is in a way an anachronism but in talking about this period, this poem because the unified country of Greece of course didn't exist in this period the various leaders of the Greek speaking forces come from as the catalogue of, of ships in book two reminds us from all over the Greek speaking world they presumably in real life would have spoken completely different dialects of Greek their leading forces from their own um, principalities. Their, their chieftains who are bringing their own tribes to gather together to fight against the Trojans in Asia Minor. So in a way, the poem sort of manages to tell the beginning of the story by, by retelling how did the, the Greek-speaking forces come to fight. It retells that in book two, and then we have a sort of retelling of how did the Trojan prince Paris steal the, um, the wife of Menelaus the brother of Ag- agamemnon these greek speaking chiefs um, were enraged at the capture of this woman but n- none of that is told in any straightforward way in the poem it's all to- it's all there as backstory that the listener is assumed already to know
0: and that question that you said that they would have all have spoken different dialects but of course in the in the poem they all speak the same language and the trojans also speak that language that that in the poem that the achaeans the greeks and the trojans Are they different peoples to the extent they speak the same language, they worship the same gods, they appear to trade across the same spaces to inhabit the same world? Is there a sense in which the Trojan War is a civil war, an Aegean civil war?
1: I certainly presented that there's surprisingly little difference between the quote-unquote Greeks and the Trojans. And you're right that they all speak the same language, which is this strange hodgepodge language which nobody in real life ever spoke, um, which is a reflection of the fact that the oral tradition on which this poem is based developed over multiple different areas of the Greek-speaking world and it collects together different dialect terms, different dialect phrases, different dialect forms, such that in a way these poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, are sort of themselves symptomatic of um, cultural assimilation or of multiculturalism, that they're, they're all forming an enterprise together, even if that enterprise is killing each other.
0: And does the poem take sides? There's no, I mean, it doesn't really, does it? It's not as if the Greeks are the goodies and the Trojans are the baddies all the other way around.
1: There are no goodies or baddies. I mean, the, the gods are pretty cruel. Are they the baddies? No, they're they're powerful, wonderful, you know, worship-worthy beings. The baddies are perhaps mortality and the fragility of the human body. and But that's also part of what makes things so beautiful and so glorious is how... How few hours we have on Earth, and the poem makes you so aware of that, and aware of how how beautiful it is to to be alive and to be brave for a few moments or for a few days.
0: Should we listen now to a reading from your translation in progress? And um, this is Achilles hurling angry abuse at Agamemnon in Book One.
1: Yes. So so I said that the poem is the plot of the poem is premised on the anger of Achilles against Agamemnon, and. It hinges on the uneasy alliance between different ways that elite warriors can be powerful, that Achilles is the one who's the best athlete, the best fighter, but he's not the most rich or socially powerful, and he's hurling insults at the socially powerful Agamemnon who's trying to boss him
2: around. Fat wino, dog face, courage like a deer... You never dare to arm yourself and join the troops in battle or the best Greek fighters on raids. That seems like death to you. You'd rather go through the great Greek camp and take the prize of any man who dares to speak against you. Cannibal king, you eat your people up. Chief of non-entities... Or oh, this would be your last atrocity. I swear to you, a mighty oath by this staff here, which will grow no more leaves or shoots. Its growth was over as soon as it had left its mountain stump. It will not sprout again. Now bronze has stripped its leaves and bark. Now warriors grasp it in firm hands when they judge and guard our norms. By this, I swear a mighty oath, one day... The Greeks will all be longing for Achilles. You'll yearn to help, but you'll be powerless. Many will fall beneath the murderous hands of Hector. Then you'll claw your heart inside you, distraught because you failed to show respect towards the best of the Achaeans. Thanks for listening
1: to this extract from Among the Ancients, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. To listen to the full episodes and all our other Close Reading series, sign up to our Close readings subscription, go to lrb.me forward slash close readings, or click on the link in the description.
2: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
1: Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse
2: Crookshank.